0: I'm Kendra Tombolato, here with Mei Zhang, and this is the China Travel Podcast by Wild China Travel. Each week, we'll be heading to a new place in China to share our top local tips and tricks, highlighting our favorite food, hotels, and experiences, as well as sharing resources. If you're joining or catching up on past episodes, we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast. And lastly, if you're interested in traveling China with us or attending any of our other virtual events, please visit our website at wildchina.com. For this episode, we head to Tibet a region on the western reaches of China, commonly referred to as the last frontier, the roof of the world. Home to the sparkling Patala Palace, the vast expanse of the Tibetan Plateau, the snow-capped peaks of the Himalayas, the north and eastern faces of Mount Everest, the seat of Tibetan Buddhism. It also happens to be where wild China's first sparks of existence came to be. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us. This is our seventh episode and I am back here with May. The last few episodes... I haven't been around. May has been chatting with some of our experts and guides about different places in China. So I'm excited to be back here, joining May and talking about Tibet. So yeah, May, maybe you can start us off with uh, setting the scene. What comes to mind when you think of Tibet?
1: I think everyone think of Tibet as the higher ground because physically it's higher. It seems like spiritually, it's higher too. That's how everyone feels about Tibet. I think. In my mind, when I think about Tibet, two actually different images come to mind. One is this vast, treeless, almost moon-like mountains with rock faces, right, in the distance. And then there's this herd of Tibetan antelopes galloping in the distance, trailing them as this cloud of dust. And this is in Ali. This was the first morning when I woke up in the cabin of an oil tanker going into Tibet. Never saw anything like that before. It was stunning. Then there's this other imagery, which is from um, northwestern Yunnan, which is also Tibetan, but it's very agrarian, very green and beautiful glacier mountains covered in snow at the peak. Slightly lower altitude. We're still talking about very high altitude, about ten thousand feet. They have barley fields and also yaks and all the Tibetan traditional like farmers, maybe semi nomadic communities. They would herd their yaks in the open fields and also spend lots of time chanting and counting their Buddhist beads, walking the kora around Sunsam Monastery. That's sort of like the two images that constantly pop up in my mind.
0: It's so interesting. There's these two, obviously they live in harmony, but sort of very different images. Some people come to us and they ask about going to a trip to Tibet to do trekking, right? They're interested in the Himalayas and that kind of stuff. And then some people are looking for more of like a spiritual journey, learn more about Buddhism and Tibetan culture, and which is just everywhere. Like you said, you see Tibetan people doing koras, going to temples, every element of the daily life. So yeah, absolutely. It makes me want to go back. I also want to ask you about Wild China and uh, Mount Kailash. I know that Wild China's founding story um, has something to do with Mount Kailash over 20 years ago. Okay,
1: <laughs> you ready for this? If I didn't make it out of that trip, there would be no Wild China. Seriously, I didn't know it would be such a treacherous journey. Mount Kailash, I think a lot of us who are interested in Tibet would have read about it or researched about it. It's um, in In Ali, which is a western region of Tibetan Autonomous Region. And it's this pyramid-shaped kind of a mountain, a naturally formed swastika on the southern face. It's, it's a rock formation. When snow falls on top, the black rock and the snow, you can see it, you see the swastika from a distance. And because of that, it's considered the most spiritual, holy mountain. All the Tibetans aspire to do the Korra around the mountain, which is, I think, 54 or 56 kilometers. Me, being a newbie, I um, hitchhiked all the way from Kashgar, from Xinjiang, all the way up to Mount Kailash. And back then, well, still now, it's not really open to individual travelers, right? So it's very difficult to find backpackers to go on the journey together. They were all either tour groups or they were Tibetans servicing the tour groups. No Chinese were there either because that's pre the boom of Chinese tourism traveling around the world. So I went there. I waited for about two days to find a companion. And I said, okay, I'm going to do it alone. Because the longer you wait, the later in the season, this was already Late September. So it was getting cold. I couldn't wait any longer. And uh, I dumped my big backpack at the guest house. The guest house, by the way, was this roll of mud brick houses. It was looking like a hamlet of a village. I heard from our guy Nima, who says that very place now has a four star hotel. And he tells me the Wild China clients can afford because it's very expensive. (laughs) And it's a town now. Back then it was just a roll of houses. So I took a day pack enough water, some food, a sleeping bag, no tent, because I was planning to stay on the northern side. There should be a guesthouse there. Within an hour, I ran into all these wild dogs. There are wild dogs everywhere in Tibet. You know that. They lie in the middle of the road, right? Then they started, four of them started following me, not faster nor slower, just, just followed me for hours. Initially, it was like kind of cute. After like they wouldn't leave me for so long. It became very spooky. It was quite scary. And I braved that, got into the northern side. I was so happy to see the monastery and said, oh, I'm done for the day. To find a padlock on the door. Because it was so late in the season, there were no other backpackers. And so the guest house was closed. And I look around, there was like nothing, literally nothing that could provide shelter. If this thing wasn't open, then I would be in the open. And I thought, my God, the dogs wouldn't kill me then this would. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked around and tried to get a little bit of help. And somewhere in the distance, there was this tour group that set up their camp. So I walked over. It was a Swiss mountaineering expedition serviced by a group of Nepali guides. They sort of huddled around and had a little discussion and then offered me a tent, a small A-frame tent, and gave me food for the night. I was so grateful, so grateful. The tent was, you know, probably a backup tent that was a little bit broken. And I sat up in the middle of the night, both grateful for the generosity. They saved my life, literally. Very grateful for the, just the surrounding. It was so beautiful. There was a bright moon shining on these snow, glacier-covered peaks so pretty. And I thought this was one of the most magical and beautiful moments in life. Would other people have to endure what I just went through to get here? If I make it out of there and uh, I still think tourism is a good idea, there's something I can do to, to build access to magical experiences like what I had without necessarily the kind of risk I had to have Back then, it's not that I didn't want to research, but there was no internet. There was or there was very little, there was internet, but very little information about the guest house. So there was no phone number. There was no cell coverage. So I thought someday, maybe I'll do something that enables people to experience the magic of this wider open land, experience China differently. That's when the seed was planted.
0: That's amazing. What a journey, especially by yourself. Oh my goodness. I cannot believe that. Um, I was young. Wow. But it's very cool. I think that's like, you know, obviously very in line with Wild China's values still to today is really unique experiences that otherwise wouldn't be accessible, whether it's really, really far away, like Mount Kailash, or whether it's just something that, you know, doesn't have a lot of information or doesn't have any English information or something that would be unattainable on your own. So that's amazing. I want to sort of go back to something you said at the beginning, because I think this was a note that we should sort of discuss, but you mentioned the Tibet Autonomous Region when you were talking about Mount Kailash. Earlier, you talked about Songzanlin Monastery, which is uh, in Shangri-La and Yunnan, right? So what is the difference between sort of what people consider to be Tibet and then the sort of different areas where there is Tibetan culture, you know, where you can experience that, whether it's within the Tibetan Autonomous Region or if it's in Yunnan, Sichuan, Gansu?
1: Kendra, I feel like, you know, you are... Very well researched, and you probably know the subject. I can briefly talk about it, but please feel free to add. There's a Tibetan autonomous region, what people refer to TAR, or you often hear the name Lhasa being thrown around. And Lhasa is the capital city of TAR. And this Tibetan autonomous region, it, honestly, it's an artificial line that uh, drew sort of out this wide area in southwest China. That doesn't limit the area where the Tibetans actually live. The Tibetans live broader than that. When you go to actually northern India, in Ladakh region, you find Tibetan populations there as well. On this other side, bordering other provinces in China, in the northern, northeastern of TAR, of Tibetan Autonomous Region, there's Qinghai, Gansu, further to the east, there's Sichuan, to the southeast, I'm all talking sort of standing in Lhasa's position, right? So all these provinces have beautiful sort of areas that share a lot of similar cultural sort of traditions. Landscape-wise, they are on the eastern extension of the Himalayas, so other mountain ranges in other parts of Tibet. Religion-wise, they all believe in Tibetan Buddhism. Lifestyle-wise, economic, income-wise, this eastern or northeastern area of Tibetan region is more agrarian. When you go to Lhasa itself, it really looks like the moon, right? It's very barren, open land. But this other region of Tibetan, pockets of Tibetan culture, usually are much greener. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, I but think... You can add it. I remember you told me something about the Tibet travel permit, which is very useful for travelers.
0: Yeah, Tell absolutely. Um, so yeah, the areas you just mentioned, like Shangri-La and Yunnan and that sort of border area that has all the mountains, Western Sichuan, like you said, Qinghai and Gansu, they are all obviously different provinces. So they're within mainland China. They don't require any kind of special permit to visit. If you have a Chinese tourist visa, uh, you can visit any of those areas. However, the Tibetan autonomous region, I think many people know, requires a special permit called a Tibet travel permit. Um, and a lot of people hear this and it sort of turns them off. I know I've talked to a lot of people and they're like, oh, it sounds quite complicated. There's a lot of information on the Internet, sort of opposite of what you were saying earlier. And I think it's kind of confusing because there is so much different conflicting information. But it is actually quite simple. Basically, you just need to book through a travel company like Wild China and they handle everything for you. So all you need is you need a Chinese tourist visa. Um, and then once you have that, you would send the company your tourist visa and a picture of your passport front page. And then we apply for the Tibet travel permit for you. I think another question people often have is, is once you get a permit for Tibet, how do you get in? So I know that there's a lot of restrictions around foreigners getting in and out of Tibet. Where they can enter from. We talked about in our our Shangri-La episode that obviously the Songsam hotels have like they have lodges road tripping all the way to Lhasa, but unfortunately non-Chinese passport holders cannot do that. So what are sort of some of the other things to keep in mind when traveling to Tibet? How's the best way to get in? You know, airport, train? Well, we've often
1: had most of our guests fly into Lhasa. That is a two-hour flight. From Chengdu and it's beautiful, just, just an absolutely beautiful flight if you stay awake. But me personally, I love the overland journeys to get into Tibet. The train from uh, Lanzhou up to Lhasa is a little bit harder. I'm not uh, so much of a train person because in China, I think even though it's a tourist train, but some of the harder conditions are the restrooms, the shared restrooms, which makes it a bit difficult. Not even sure how long that
0: takes. I know from Xining, it's about 22 hours straight. So that's coming to Lhasa from the north. The
1: facility is not luxurious enough for me to really enjoy it. Not my top choice at the moment. The other way is from Kashgar Overland to Ali and further to Lhasa. It takes a long time. It took me two weeks. It was the most beautiful overland drive one could ever have. And then from the eastern side, there's you can go from Chengdu and drive through Gansu and all those areas into, it's called Chuan Xian, Sichuan Tibet Road. And from Yunnan, from Shangri-La into Lhasa, it's uh, Dian Xian. from all those overland routes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Actually, talking about Lhasa, I wanted to ask you, I think this is an interesting cultural thing. So I know Lhasa sits at, let's see, I have it here, 11,975 feet which is 3,650 meters. So altitude sickness, right, is something people are concerned about, and rightly so. I know that in China, there's like a certain, is it like a flower or like an herb that people use to ward off altitude sickness? I'm, I'm really interested in this. I've heard people talk about it, but I don't really know much about it.
1: It's something called hong jing tian. It is a herb, but it's also be processed into a pill type of medicine pills that you can take to prepare for altitude sickness. I don't know the medical effects of it, but it is said among Chinese travelers, pretty much 100% of Chinese travelers going to Tibet would have something like that, while the Western medication of Diamox for altitude sickness is not. It's fascinating when you go to Cusco, you get off the plane and they tell you, oh, you need to drink this cocoa tea with leaves from a cocoa tree. And it's in fact, sort of partially, I think it's related to the cocaine family. So that's what the Indians in that area, the locals there in Cusco would use that to fend off altitude sickness. So local herbal recipes, uh, remedies for altitude sickness are the same around the world, just different ingredients.
0: I love that. Um, I think just to add to that too, it's really interesting. I think Tibet, Lhasa in particular, is very well prepared for that concern. All of the Five star hotels there have like, first of all, they have like an on site clinic. So if you feel ill, they have like a doctor in a clinic in the hotel that you can go to. They have oxygen that they can bring to your room. So if you're like not sleeping so well or not feeling good, they can bring up an oxygen tank. All of the Wild China guides have oxygen in the cars. So if you're like feeling unwell during your trip, you can have oxygen. It's amazing. It's set up incredibly well so that there shouldn't be a limitation, right, to to having you go to Tibet.
1: Just a funny anecdote is not far from me about. You know, a block away is my neighbor, Leo Lebon. You probably don't know this name because he um, founded Mountain Travel Sobek way back in the 70s. This is a travel company, right? So he went to Tibet in the 70s and he experienced the altitude sickness and all of these things. Before you were born. (laughs) And if you tell him this is how people travel now, he will probably laugh. You know, this is not
0: for the hardcore.
1: (laughs) Tibet has become more comfortable and welcoming in its infrastructure and physical sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think especially in Lhasa, but once you get outside of Lhasa, I feel like much, much less so. Like all of a sudden, this sort of luxury totally drops, which is okay, right? It's a totally different experience. Like you were saying on your trip to Mount Kailash, obviously. Things have changed a lot since then. But even I went to Everest Base Camp with my parents through Tibet. It's quite a long drive to get there from Lhasa. So we stayed in several places along the way. And it was always like the local best hotel, right? So it was like a three-star international standard. But it was definitely very basic, you know, very like, you know, you had clean sheets, clean towel, the room was clean. And that was sort of the end of where the luxury stops. You know, Tibet still has a lot of that original charm and that original culture that hasn't been changed. Um, They don't have five-star hotels everywhere like you'll see in the rest of China. And they don't have all the amenities and all of the sort of tourist grooming everywhere. So I would add in that that's definitely still exists outside of Lhasa and, and in Lhasa as well. Give a little
1: advice, Kendra, because you've been researching this from a a traveler perspective. Uh, Maybe give some practical advice on where we should stay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in Lhasa itself, there are two five-star hotels, the Shangri-La and the St. Regis. They are both great hotels. I've heard people say one's better than the other. I don't think there's a clear winner. I think that they're both amazing hotels. It's just whichever one you prefer. Also, as is the case with a lot of China... The rates at the hotels are incredibly good. It doesn't seem like a five-star hotel rate. So the pricing is amazing for what you're getting. And then there is a Songsam in Lhasa. So that would be our recommendation for a local boutique if you wanted to stay at something a bit more local got a lot of sort of Tibetan characteristics. So those are sort of the three main suggestions that we have for Lhasa. Then once you get outside of Lhasa, like as I mentioned earlier, the local best, like there's not a lot of selection. There's probably going to be one hotel in each city that's maybe like a three-star international standard. And that's the one that we will recommend. So yeah, I guess going back to Lhasa, I wanted to ask, what are your sort of main suggestions for? I know a lot of people, especially you know, if they're going to do a whole China trip and they want to include Tibet. They don't have enough time to do like the multi-day road trip to Mount Kailash or to Everest Base Camp. And they end up doing a few days in and around Lhasa. Um, What would your sort of recommendation for that be?
1: I think even if it's like three or four days, it's still worth it. It's just the spirituality of it. Everyone goes to Lhasa and the first thing they think about is the Potala. But I would highly, highly advise travelers to save that until a little bit later in the trip, <laughs> day two or day three. You drive by it every day. Uh, you take a picture of it every day. But it is, again, higher. So I, I would do that a little later. There's so many beautiful um, monasteries. My favorite is probably the Jokan Temple and the Sarah Monastery. And they actually, Nima took some of our guests to a little meditation retreat cave outside of town. But Nima is our Tibetan guide whom you know, we, we all love him. And I think those sort of not famous or unnamed uh, in English retreat meditation caves are little gems absolutely must have to add to the itinerary. Now back to why I like Jokan Temple and Sarah Monastery. Jokan Temple is in the middle of the old town, right? And I just love going there, spending at least at least half a day. Aside from seeing the Buddhist structures, the inside of the temple itself, what's most interesting to me, intriguing is life in and around the temple. The way the lamas pray, the, you know, the ceremonies they have inside, even though I don't understand much at all as a layman, but it's touching to experience the devotion. Also, outside of Jokhang Temple, you can walk around it. a mini kora in a way. It's very easy. But you see all these Tibetan pilgrims from all corners of their land, far, far away, making their way here and doing this prostration, full-body prostration, nonstop with the prayer wheel spinning. I find that is actually, when you ask me the image of Tibet, the spinning prayer wheel and the flying prayer flags to very, very symbolic image of the spirituality of the people there. I would just either walk with them without interrupting them, or some of them, if they are chatty and open to a conversation, have a conversation. But just being embraced and soaking up in that energy, I find that very nice. The Sarah Monastery is very funny. <laughs> it's it's a, you know, the monk debate, right? You have to time it right. I forgot it's like certain times of the day they are there. Again, I don't understand a word, but you just see the sort of the body gesture and the eloquence, the laughter, and, and the booing from the other monks. It's fantastic. Everyone thinks Buddhism is Zen, very mellow, very sort of singular conversation with your scripture. Not at all, right? It, it sort of totally comes alive and of all these monks in their crimson robes. Then after that, I just love walking around with Nima to... Remote temples, a nomadic yurt, somewhere, tent, somewhere in the outskirts of Lhasa without a set itinerary or schedule and just leaving a lot of space for sort of these spontaneous encounters.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I think that's a really good point about thinking about Tibetan Buddhism being very silent, right? About, you know, meditating in silence. But I feel like my experience in Lhasa was very similar. It was like, The opposite. It was very like not loud, but there was a lot going on. You know, people are doing the Korah and there's shops selling stuff, people talking to each other. It's busy. There's people all over the place. It's not like a silent setting. And then the, the prostration in front of the temple, I stood and watched that for like 20 minutes. It was fascinating over and over and over. And again, it's not like a quiet setting. There's people walking by. There's visitors like standing there watching. Same with the monks at Sarah Monastery. There's a lot of people observing it and they're, you know, just in doing what they would be doing normally. You know, it's just their life.
1: I was lucky enough to have visited Tibet in various seasons. Summer, it can actually get quite hot, and, but it's greener. My favorite was dead of winter. I went in December, right? You, you just like, people don't think of going to Tibet. It's, it's too cold. It's not. I mean, it is cold, but if you are flying from Beijing or New York, it's, it's no colder. Blue, blue sky and the very sharp rays of sunshine makes the place so, I don't know, crisp is the word that comes to my mind. And in winter, there are so so many fewer travelers, tourists, that you find you are much more in the middle of the locals' lives. And particularly in those seasons, when you see the pilgrims still do their prostration.
0: Yeah, we went in February, so also very cold. But it was amazing. There was like almost no one else there. Lots of people said to well, us, you're going to go in February. Isn't it going to be really cold? We'll just bring a jacket. It's, we'll be fine. And like you said, we were. And it was, I mean, like anywhere that you go off season, it's a totally different experience in its own right. Um, awesome. Okay. Well, I feel like we've covered a lot about Tibet. Obviously, we could talk all day about this. I definitely could. I love Tibet. Is there anything else that you want to add in for the listeners? Any sort of useful advice or anything that you would recommend that we haven't covered?
1: Like you said, we can, we can be on this topic for a day. I think one key thing about traveling to Tibet that I found most enjoyable is not to rush it. This is almost like, you know, a a theme of wild China way of travel is not rushing it. Buffering in two, three hours a day of free time allows you to read up about the temples. Sit at a cafe near Jokan Temple. You can find a spot and just read up about Tibetan Buddhism, which is extremely confusing the four different schools of it, different names of the Buddhas. One of the things that Nima told me that he did with our guests, they took a hike to this hermit cave where some of the devout Buddhists would go on fasting retreats, live. He said, you know, one of the important thing is when you are pushing your body to a physical limit, you actually appreciate life more. And when you're sitting there meditating, your eyes are observing the crawling little ants or bugs or whatever, a lot more in detail, because you have long stretch spans of time. When you're hungry, time goes by really, really, really slowly. But they would just sit there and watch the ants crawl, and maybe he suggests the guests to save half of their lunch, feed some of these little crawling ants or whatever nearby, and reflect on your life. And I think having the time like that, the guests appreciate a non-touristy experience a lot more viscerally. And I think that is a key to really enjoy traveling in Tibet. If I have the time, I go back again and again. First trip, maybe five days. Second trip, I want to give it two weeks.
0: Cool. Thanks, May. Thanks for all your, your tips and advice and stories. And yeah, I look forward to us and Wild China going back to Tibet soon. I wanted to share with everyone, if you know there's still questions about Tibet, we do have an actual landing page on our website full of Tibet FAQs. So feel free to go to wildchina.com and that is there to help everyone. Wild China Travel presents the China Travel Podcast, hosted by me, Kendra Tombalato, and Wild China founder, Mei Zhang. In this series, we'll be traveling to a different place in China each week to share our local tips and expert travel advice. Catch our weekly podcast. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.